Hello, hello, fact fiends, and welcome back to yet another episode of Let's Talk About the Facts. Blah! But, you know, we're a favorite source of murders, cold cases, all sorts of things. And today we are bringing you our first episode on a cult. And with me today are two of my favorite Twitter friends I have yet to meet in person, but they're here and they're both going to be here with us through this whole cult story, Tilly and Susan Bridges. So, hello. Hi, hi. <laughs> nice to virtually meet you. Yes. Yes, it's so wonderful. So tell us a little bit about yourselves, guys. Sure. Um, we write comics. We are audio drama producers. And writers. Uh, and writers mm-hmm. um, for PendantAudio.com. That's our production company. And um, we also yeah, have a comic on Amazon called Kill Switch. You can find it there. Um, kind of a sci-fi, action-y, social justice story. And um, we're also a rep for TV writing if anyone wants to hire us. <laughs> yeah, please. Sure. If you're coming here looking for writers. That's right. <laughs> all yeah. three of us, right? Yeah, for real. <laughs> Even though I think we're like two different genres, that's fine. So three amazing women doing amazing writing. Um, at the end, we will do a little bit more like uh, point to where your stuff is because definitely your audio shows and audio dramas some of our listeners might be really interested in um so we'll do some shout outs at the end to like specific places where they can find some of your shows but today they will be weighing in on our story about the disappearance of charles southern and all of the deaths that surround the orbit of a woman named Terry Hoffman. Uh, yeah, so this is definitely an Unsolved Mysteries story that I got attached to back in the day. Robert Stack, you know, imprinted it on my brain. But it's one that I felt like there were so many pieces and they were all right there. But they just didn't fit together. But they did. It's just like you had to assume the worst. You know, when you said un- an unsolved mysteries thing, I thought you were just speaking like as words, but you mean like the show show Robert Stack from the show. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. That's who I want to be when I grow up, she says at 29 years old. <laughs> that theme song used to creep me out. Do, oh, it's like lullaby, honestly. Like, I've watched <laughs> that show so much. I was like, Dennis Farina, can I get that black turtleneck, though? And then, like, Elizabeth Holmes started using it, and I was like, never mind. Nope. Don't need two Elizabeths with that. Um, so let's talk about... Because, you know, I, you know me, I just jump into stories, and I'm about to power through, like a steamroller. Um, Charles Southern. So, Charles Southern... Uh, was born July 25th, 1948. And this man was the assistant chairman of the English department at a uh, Chicago junior college. And he mysteriously vanished in December of 1987. So he was associated with a cult. And a lot of us think I could never fall for a cult, right? You see the documentaries, you see Jonestown, you see Nexium, and you see all of these like um, F, uh, FLDR, I believe it is, uh, 
fundamentalist of the Latter-day Saints. Oh, FLDS. Sorry, there's no R there. And you see all these cults or religions that are called cults, and you think, oh, I'm never going to be tricked into that. But it is so simple and easy for how people do fall into cults. And by definition, a cult is very simple. It's a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward one particular figure or object. So people like who were involved in the Branch Davidians or the People's Temple or Heaven's Gate, those are extreme cults that we know of, but there are smaller ones such as what we're going to talk about today, and that is the, uh, oh my gosh, how many papers do I have? Uh, 25, actually. Wow. <laughs> I know, I wrote too much. Uh, conscious development of mind, or body, mind, and soul. So a lot of the research I've done recently on cults and why I felt it was really important to cover this specific topic is... Um, a lot of power that cults can come come up with and grab people is during times of turmoil and we just went through a huge time of turmoil and we're not through it yet but a lot of people call dumpism which is what I'm going to call it for the rest of my life no one's going to tell me it's anything else a cult and by all means it is you have a central figure and all of that religious devotion is pointed straight at a particular figure for better or for worse there's no getting off that bandwagon because then you have to admit that you're wrong right and it's so interesting to see who is ride or die and i have mentioned many cults just now that people may or may not be familiar with um for those who don't know who the Branch Davidians are, but do know about the incident in Waco, Texas, that's a potato-potato situation. Uh, so, basically, Charles Southern had gotten involved with this cult run by Terry Hoffman. And it was called the Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul. Uh, so, his 1987 disappearance most likely is connected to the spiritual leader terry hoffman and that is such a loose spiritual leader and her group his story was featured on a 1995 episode of unsolved mysteries and then went into my eyeballs in 2002 on reruns on lifetime so uh charles had joined a chicago chapter of the cult but the cult was centralized actually in Dallas, and he was later invited to Dallas into her home. He was part of her inner circle. So he had risen to a position of like influence within her cult, and he had even begun teaching classes and leading meditation sessions. I find it important in this moment to tell you guys that uh, Dr. Charles Sultan, Southern Sultan uh, Dr. Charles Southern was actually a black man in the 1980s at this moment um, that had gotten into this primarily white cult. And I don't know why 
that feels important, but anything else that I find, mostly white people were involved. So, and all of the other circulating deaths in, in her orbit were white individuals. And I find that very interesting in regards to Terry's choices. You'll understand later why I feel like putting that specification there out. So in some interviews with uh, Charles's mother, Ingerberg, she had mentioned that Charles had always just kind of been on a search for religion and went on travels across the world to experience people's different belief systems for himself, basically to see, you know, in India what's going on with Buddhism and Hinduism, um, like, uh, I can't remember all the places that she had mentioned, but he was a well, well-traveled individual, and he had studied many, many religions, and so this is somebody who is well-educated and well, I would say, traveled and versed in the different things along you know, the path of what's available at the time. And this is pre-internet people. He couldn't, like, look her up. But eventually, uh, she w- he was a part of her inner circle, and she had used him to create what was called a, quote, psychic shield around her. So that's, like, an inner circle, like, very, very protected spot for her. Um... One day, Charles was then found wandering the streets. He was holding a newspaper, and he was saying, I lived for art. His That's sister, creepy. Right? <laughs> that sounds like a psychotic break to me. Wow. Yeah. His sister, Cheryl, took him to the hospital. She was afraid that he was actually suicidal. Uh, and then during his recovery, his mother, Ingerberg, would visit every day, but two of the cult's members also did. And when they would arrive, they would ask his mother to leave so they could talk to him alone, and his demeanor would change. So Charles is released, and then he went back to his normal activities. So he's still involved in the group, but he kind of fell out with Terry. So he's starting to pull away, basically. So in December of 1987, he planned Um, a trip for Christmas break because you know he's a professor he still gets those Sure. Um, he was going to go to India and he had talked to his family several times prior to his scheduled departure date so his mother Ingerberg uh, believed that there was something wrong with him Uh, during their last conversation he said that he was fine and he would be be leaving in three days so there was no point in her coming up to visit Uh, I believe she was in Cincinnati and he was in Chicago and that's like a 300 mile drive. I don't, sorry if anyone's international, I don't know the kilometer like equivalent, (laughs) but that's a solid multi-hour drive. Um, so two weeks passed, but his family was very concerned because they had assumed that he was still on his trip and he would be coming home soon but they expected to hear from him so 
his parents, by the time that he was supposed to be back and they still hadn't heard from him, they went to his house and they found that his passport had no entry stamps for India. And this, of course, is 1987, pre-9-11. It was super easy to travel. So they look at his passport, no stamps for India. All of his stuff is still there. And in a drawer, they find a powerful medication. And it's similar to the lethal South American poison curare. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. I don't know a lot about lethal poisons from South America, but I did my best. That poison is normally used as an anesthetic to paralyze, and it's only supposed to be injected. Then, this is the bananas part about it. This is the bananas part. It's not bananas yet? (laughs) It's not bananas yet. We haven't gotten there. That was all just like the rest of the runts. This is the banana runt. So, his parents discovered that his winter coat had been folded inside out on a Nigerian tribal ceremonial stool with his hat on top. And they later learned that this display was the Nigerian tribal symbol of death. What I find interesting is I don't believe his family was of Nigerian descent. So this must have been something he picked up on his travels or somebody staged it for him. So they finally found two barely legible notes. One stated, in part, I came under a bad influence and I was trying to fight it myself. The other was apparently his last will and testament, naming Terry as the executor of his estate. So How this convenient. Scene, oh, indeed. It's a similar pattern with Terry's followers, who also meant a gruesome fate. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> So let's talk about this bitch, because she's got a lot of death at her doorstep, and we've only talked around her, so let's talk about her. And we can't do it behind her back because she already died, so we're going to do it in front of her back, wait, in front of her face, (laughs) but like, I don't know. So Terry Hoffman, she was born March something, 21st, March 21st, 1938. And she says that she grew up picking cotton in the stifling heat. I don't know why that bugs me, but it does. Actually, I know why that bugs me. Uh, She's best known as Terry Lee Hoffman, by the way. Uh, She was, I don't know what her original birth name was. She was orphaned and then adopted at the age of 11 by a Dallas couple. And her name was then Terry Lee Benson. At the age of 15, Terry at the opposition of her adoptive parents, married a um, trucker named John Wilder, which you know something about that cracks me up. Like his name is Wilder. Yeah, I love it. And shortly after she became pregnant, she never graduated high school, yet she yearned to be more than a housewife. (laughs) Don't we all? Uh, basically, they had three children together named Kathy, Kenneth, and Virginia. So in those early years, she began to participate in informal gatherings with, quote, like-minded friends to discuss the origin and structure of the universe. I mean, this is the 70s. What else were we doing? 
I mean, that, that part I'm down with, but yeah. I, I'm not going to go turn that into a cult, so. She hasn't turned into a cult yet, but she will. Mm. It's one of those parts where you're like, just you wait. <laughs> um, so she basically was drawn to the writings of Christian mystic Edgar Case and self-help groups like the Silva Mind Control I meant to look into that. I didn't. I feel like that's a whole other episode. Um, she basically took classes in hypnosis, and she later started offering weekly evening meditation classes. So these classes would eventually evolve into her conscious development group, which Terry began to, quote, teach from written lessons she prepared and offered for sale. Huh. So now we see... When you see green, it just it just got to keep bankrolling. Mm-hmm. It's all downhill from there. It is uphill in their mind, downhill for the rest of us. <laughs> so in during these meditation groups, right, it was said that Terry would lead the students on a tour of the temples of the higher realms. The description being, as a Washington tour guide might aid a busload of blind tourists. Wow. And I know, I was like, huh. And the students would frequently speak up and add descriptive touches, like they were all there together. It kind of sounds like a D&D session, but you're pretending <laughs> you're all in, like, some heavenly being place. Did they think they were, like, astral projecting or something? Like, they thought, like, their minds were traveling there? Probably. You know, I would say yes, but at the same time, astral projecting comes in later, so I'm not certain. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, oh, we're not even at banana level yet. This is, like... This one's got everything. This is pears compared to everything. <laughs> so, everyone in meditation had to sit cross-legged on the floor, and they listened to her... On everything from sex to personal finance to ghosts. She really did have it all. Like, honestly, I wouldn't say that she wanted to be Elizabeth Warren, but it kind of feels like she did. Like, she had a plan for everything? No. Mm -mm. It's ridiculous. So, she was very heavily focused on balancing karma and she emphasized on the meaninglessness of death. Meaninglessness is a very hard word to say. It's a long word. It is, and it's got a lot of S's and a lot of E's. Uh, Of death, and she also stressed the concept of reincarnation. And her spiritual literature would stress the ephemeral ideas such as this is a quote. (laughs) You will also become conscious of the continuity of life. Death, then, will not exist in reality, for you will realize that your existence is not dependent upon the mere maintenance of your physical body. The result of noble death is rebirth. It took me nine times to read that for me to actually comprehend what the crap she was saying because I was also watching Criminal Minds at the same time. But <laughs> it sounds a little Yoda-ish. It's a little a little Yoda. 
Yeah, it was like, okay, did we have to word it like this? Like, you know, sometimes it doesn't have to be that. Mm, that was just word soup. Right? It needs a little editing. Yeah. Turn that down. <laughs> Luminous Honestly. beings are we, not this crude matter. See? Done. Yoda had it right. <laughs> Look, if you're going to charge nine ninety nine a packet for righteousness, you got to have a little bit of mystery in there. <laughs> we need purple prose, thank you. Oh, my God. But what kills me the most is, like, I'm kind of sitting here going, like, you know, I've heard all this before. Maybe it's because I took a lot of religion classes because I went to a private Christian high school, but also I went to college and took philosophy classes for fun. What kind of person am I? And mm, I'm like, so I know what that's from, and I know what that's from, and I know what that's from. Hmm. I'd like to consider this a piecemeal like religion where she was like ooh that puzzle piece over there looks good I'm gonna steal some of that and no google so you can get away with a lot yeah. oh my god you can get away with so much without google mm-hmm. oh my god it's like the yahoo answers of religion <laughs> god I'm so glad that I can't be like stabbed because of her right now like, I feel like if she were alive she would come after me and be like, oh, how dare you? Uh, so basically, she had teachings, psychic readings, and then classes. And they weren't, like, rooted in harmony, love, and rebirth. So some followers said that she would dismiss their romantic relationships, saying that she had read the Akashic Records, which existed only in the spiritual realm and confirmed that two people just weren't soulmates, so they had to break up. Terry even told one student that his girlfriend was headed for a car wreck and she prevented it through meditation. See, like, I love prevention bullshit lies because it's like, look, I prevented this podcast from exploding through meditation. (laughs) Prove me wrong, right? That's right. I know, right? Tell me I'm wrong. She also said that, like, the reason people get sick, like, with cancer or, like, you know, basic physical illnesses, etc., is because they had critical thoughts. And I was like, okay. Okay, here we go. Critical thoughts. She told... The- that her followers that their problems were caused by their own negativity and that's what produced bacteria and viruses and I was like lady your bacteria is the only culture you have I have seen photos of you (laughs) and my favorite thing about Unsolved Mysteries is they would only show one photo of her it's my favorite photo of her because she looks like an absolute ghoul and um, like this look on her face like ooh, and I'm like can't I can't deal with it ah maybe I should maybe I should post that on the Instagram but okay so her first vision was at four years old did I already say this I don't think so okay her first vision was at four years old and she said that well allegedly I'm gonna say alleged to all this because it sounds like horse shit anyway um because she said like her story changed so much that I, it's all alleged from here. Um, it was at four years old, and three men 
in these apparently either gaudy or, well, she said it was gorgeous cloaks, came to her and said, and I quote, uh, she could do or be anything she wanted if she wanted it badly enough. And I was like, they're just terrible kindergarten teachers. Like, wow. Who remembers anything from when they're four? Come on. Unless it was super negative, that's what therapy is for. I mean, come on. <laughs> but I think you heard a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, it was like Snow White came out around then. Come on. But, yeah. So she, that's the cornerstone. She was like, I'm going to be a religious teacher. And I'm going to get all these people to do what I want. So she basically did that. She had become a bona fide spiritual leader. And some people would even say a guru. I think we use that word far too liberally. So you would imagine that leading the conscious development of mind, body, and soul incorporated would create problems between her and her husband, Mr. Trucker John Wilder. He kind of thought Terry's teachings is mostly like borrowed from established religions. Oh my God. It's like we had the same thought and from other authors and over time. Yeah, we all figured that out too. So Terry believed allegedly since her time from the orphanage that she was the reincarnation of Saint Teresa of Avila. And that she sure. was it was described as one of the Catholic Church's most flamboyant mystics. And it this reminds me of Angels and Demons, the sequel to the Da Vinci Code, where Tom Hanks saves the day again. And they go to the Bernini statue of St. Teresa on fire and then somebody's on fire, but it doesn't matter. I recently watched this movie anyway, but that's a bold statement. Like why would St. Teresa of Avila be in Dallas? Why wouldn't she be? You have Look, no, if you're going to I mean, go for reincarnation, obviously you're not going to be like, I was reincarnated as this person you've never heard of who led a simple life. Like that never happens. Yeah, but I There's like a hundred people who swear they're Cleopatra because, of course, you want to be someone cool, duh. I want to, yeah, that's true. But I'm like, I would have picked somebody more like, maybe, upgraded but downgraded in a way. I don't know, like a pope, like a pope. Yeah. That would carry a bit more weight, I suppose. Yeah. Like, I'm Pope John the thirtieth. I don't know. Maybe that's the genius of it, because then people would be like, no, you're making that up. But if you go a little bit less famous, a little bit further down, then they're like, well, that must maybe that is true because... She probably spent a whole afternoon in a library thinking about <laughs> it. Writing a list and crossing them off. No, no. Like, not this one. <laughs> I could just see it. Like, Julius Caesar, too big. Too big. Too big. <laughs> too big. Um, it does say that she... I like how I almost said she picked um, that St. Teresa believed that the kingdom of heaven could be visited like the rooms in a castle. So there went her room theory and Ooh. it just like fit like a shoe 
or a glove, you know? Uh, she did have this theme of like an all-inclusive dogma that Jesus Christ was a legitimate and powerful spiritual master, but so were Buddha, Lao Tzu, Muhammad, etc. So basically, we'll take anyone for the low price of $49.99 for five months. And yeah, you could practice anything as long as you paid. Yeah, so, you want to cast a wide net. Mm-hmm. You don't want to leave out any potential all those income dollars. streams. Yeah. Obviously. That's what I like about this one. And I say like very loosely. That <laughs> a lot of cults are very exclusive, but this one was like, how can I get more people? Uh, Smart. So get this part. Students also reported that Terry claimed to have levitated her body in bed. I want video footage. And that she didn't seek medical attention when her son dislocated his thumb because she wanted to heal him through meditation. Well, that's not cool. That's how people die. Yeah. That's like, a, uh, yeah. That's like one foot in the grave and the other in a, like an ice pack. Like an ice patch of like black ice. Like you're... <laughs> Like, what's the next step? You know, someone's having an allergic reaction to, I don't know, broccoli. And then you're like, nah, meditation. I got this. Ugh. Okay, so here comes the big dollars. Are you ready? Oh, sure. It wasn't, it wasn't long before Terry was regularly accepting love offerings or <laughs> encouraged donations. Oh, for no. Her- oh, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> for her time and teachings. So John was making about $101 per week as a truck d- driver, and Terry could easily receive a donation worth 50 to to $100 for an hour of consultation. Wow. So basically, John felt Terry's followers were becoming increasingly delusional, and he expressed growing skepticism with the group's teaching. I hate to say it, but Trucker John here, he was right. He put up with a lot, though. I mean, if he, if that's the point, well, finally, although, where he's like, no, now hold on. At the time, he was probably like, hold on. Women can't make as much as men. What's really happening here? <laughs> that's <laughs> a good point. Actually, no, actually, I'm thinking, he's like, okay, how is she making as much as I make in a week and an hour? Like, what's happening? That's the part I'm like, is she... Mm. Mm. Yeah, it seems like, seems like, yeah. Because yeah. that's the part I personally found it. And I'm actually curious to see how much money that is in today's money. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot of money. I will tell you. So in today's money, $101 would be $684.65. For an hour? That's some premium hourly rate yeah i hope she was doing their will at the same time and giving (laughs) them legal advice dude i i that's attorney money (laughs) that's more than like well the cumulative the part that kills me is the cumulative rate of inflation was 577.9 percent but like damn that's killer and she did it in an hour. Like, God. 
Now I can see why he's like, what the fuck is she doing over there? Like, you know, probably she was thinking or he was thinking, okay, she's a sex worker and we're, we're going to have to figure this out. Um, but on December 28, 1970, Terry was the one to file for divorce, telling everyone else that the breakup was due to John impeding her spiritual growth. Hmm. And she was only awarded custody of the eldest child and a 1968 Mustang, an assortment of socks, a shotgun, a rifle, and a pistol. An assortment of socks? Yes. <laughs> Such a weird thing to throw in there. Well, you get one kid, a car, socks, and guns. That's it. Wow. This is I, Dallas, I guess. <laughs> Honestly, Although that seems really weird for 1970 that the woman would have only gotten custody of one of the children. That's really I unusual. Know. I'm hmm. like, what was she like? What was she? What's on the books there? Because like usually it's an effort for the man to get custody of the other yeah. two. Yeah. And especially in 1970, they must have really had doubts about her. They're like, well, but she's still the woman, so we have to leave one child with her. Her life will have no meaning, right? So Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or maybe the oldest was old enough to choose and chose her. Hmm. Very yeah. weird. But four months later, don't worry, Terry's not going to stay alone forever. She married a 20-year-old North Texas State student whose name was Glenn Scott Cooley. So Glenn dropped right out of school right after he married the 33-year-old mother of three, and they began to focus on revising and expanding conscious development literature, obviously, because the literature was the problem. Mm -hmm. Like, we just need more of it. And then they began to focus on the conscious development jewelry business <laughs> sure that's related they're they're tied in because they have the same company name right so mm -hmm. therefore it's fine yes yeah it's incorporated as cd gems and terry's followers were encouraged to buy her homemade jewelry which kills me because how many southern women do i know make jewelry so many i did grow up in the south guys Oh, my God. I just had flashbacks. Okay. We're good. We're going. And they were charged properly by Terry's protective and healing properties. So, like, <laughs> there were news reports on this. And a simple philosophy, right? Okay, you ready? The more expensive the item was, the more a power it contained. What are the what? chances? No way. What a wow. Gosh, Carol. Extra magic jewelry. Yeah. It's like the whole pet rocks, uh, pet rock scam where it was like one for 25 cents or three for a dollar. Like, <laughs> come on. So Glenn was from a middle class Baptist family and they never approved of Terry. He had a brother who would describe him as accepting or like him searching for acceptance for like who he was not for someone else to make him into somebody but Terry kind of did that 
Uh, Glenn had issues with drugs in the past and Terry claimed to have cured him, that kind of thing. So she basically molded him into her perfect husband, if you will. So guess what happened? Uh, Terry filed for divorce in November of 1976 and they both agreed to expedite that proceeding amicably. The divorce was granted on January 27th, 1977. Okay. Glenn's mother did testify that Glenn wanted out of conscious development, but on February 1st, 1977, that is six days later after their divorce, right? So Glenn Cooley, aged 26, three years younger than me right now, was found deceased in a cabin owned by his parental units. So the authorities determined that his death was due to a drug overdose and it was considered an unambiguous suicide for like 13 years. And Terry claimed that Glenn had seemed despondent around the time of his death and like obviously once he left for the cabin she never saw him again. Basically he went up to the cabin to die, according to them. But on February 22nd, wait, 22nd, just 2nd, February 2nd, 1977, Terry found a note in her safe, apparently left there by Glenn the day before, and it said, Are How you convenient! Ready? Oh, yes. I, Glenn Cooley, give to Terry Cooley all of my property, both personal and real. This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishings for the house on Dunhaven Road. By the way, Terry had given, wait, Glenn had given Terry clear title to the house two weeks earlier, and all cash. I ask that this will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason. <laughs> wow. Last but not least, I give all my love to all my family and friends. As explanation for all of this, I can't really say what it is because of, but I can't, I can say what it is not because of. It is not because of divorce with Terry. <laughs> oh my God. You could not make something up that, that was, oh wow. Everyone would be like, no, 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 no. No one would ever. It's so obvious. You, okay. Yeah. Wow. 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 I know, right? <laughs> Past drug experiences, inability to cope, etc. What it is, I myself know, but don't have the words for. <laughs> so, the final estate of Glenn was like less than 3,000 in assets, but Glenn's family was insistent that he received. Uh, proceedings from the jewelry business and that had kept up to about $85,000 worth of gems and metals in his house but then a decade after you ready for this? So we are going to skip real quick a decade after this happened uh, 1980 something 7? 19 yeah 1987 I can't count uh a former, 
former conscious development teacher who will remain unknown tell she wait is it a she yes she told authorities that she and terry were present at the cabin for glenn's death uh terry told her that glenn would be going next level and admitted that once they arrived glenn told them that he had consumed the fatal drugs what wow mm-hmm so next level Remember, wow. we don't fear death in this because we reincarnate. But he's 26. Like, what? What have you done that's so bad at this point? Nothing other than marry Terry Hoffman. Yikes. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to talk about the cleavers. Um, not June. Sorry, different cleaver. So Terry obviously would use... Glenn's death as verification that there are these awful metaphysical forces that work against everyone and she would call them the black lords no joke subtle yeah like <laughs> what a choice subtle uh so shortly after he passed they started a new practice I don't think you're ready. (laughs) Like, this part is coconut. So members of conscious development believe that the black lords had the power to poison blood. So a former member described this as saying, we needed to have our blood, bloodletting, taken out of ourselves to drain the poison out. Nope, 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 nope. Oh, yeah. This is some 13th century shit. (laughs) Right? So the induction of bloodletting basically drove many out of the group, and even that loyal inner circle shrank within conscious development. However, members who stayed and embraced this bizarre practice in the paranoia it fostered became increasingly devoted to Terry and her teachings. I feel Elizabeth Bathory coming on. Anyone else? So, yes. One of her most loyal followers and her secretary treasurer. I did it. Of the (laughs) Incorporated Conscious Development Group. She was in 1974. She was a slender, earnest woman who enjoyed the income from an ample family trust fund. Oh, so, so she, she had nothing else to do. <laughs> she Got it. Rich, she's a rich white woman. Yeah. The best <laughs> the best to come into a cult, right? Her name was Sandy Cleaver. And she was also described as sheltered and naive by mm. her friends and family. She had long searched for spiritual fulfillment and she found that All right, she found it. She would divorce her husband, Chuck, one month after Terry divorced John Wilder, basically. Like, she could not make decisions for herself, so she just did what Terry did. Um, She used the exact same justification as Terry and claimed that her father, or sorry, her husband and father of her daughter were blocking her spiritual development. So Sandy's ex-husband would later claim uh, 
that he allowed her custody of their seven-year-old daughter at the time because he feared that with the belief in reincarnation, she would kill their daughter, then permit her to live with him. Yikes. Big ol' yikes, right? So Sandy's position in Conscious Development Group was described as basically Terry's full-time unpaid assistant. I want to know where I can find one of those. Um, Mm -hmm. If anyone is looking for a full-time unpaid job, I'm available. Not to do one, but to give one. (laughs) Uh, By 1978, Devereaux, the daughter, which Devereaux is a great name, was 14, and she was well acquainted with her mother's conscious development antics, and she was thoroughly embarrassed by them. She did not fall for that at all. Good kid. Yeah, good kid, (laughs) very. She basically had matured into an energetic, attractive, and normal young girl, despite her mother's best efforts. And she enjoyed poetry, she played basketball, she had a huge amount of friends, and yet... Sandy. She became convinced that there were evil spirits in Devereaux and they were trying to infect her energies Mm. and that Devereaux had been taken over. You know, because she was liked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Terry encouraged this belief saying that she had been spiritually attacked by Devereaux who was a great powerful negative being hmm yeah so Devereaux noticed the issues with her mother explaining away her biggest frustration with Sandy that they could not talk as mother and daughter so Sandy's thoughts regarding her daughter became a dark and Devereaux apparently interpreted them interpreted them as her mother's distance as a result of a lack of communication with him. How is the daughter the adult here? Oh, that happens way too often. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. But I'm just like, this girl is so mature. Is she seeing a therapist? Because, whoo. So, though previously Sandy had refused to take her shopping or to go see her play basketball Devra was thrilled when she was invited to travel with her and her fiance um, another conscious development member to Hawaii so on February 25th of 1979 Sandy and Devra waded out into a lagoon and you know it's like it's a lagoon whatever um, so it was supposed to be calm and shallow and it did not have like that large beach area and they had a raft with them so they waited out about 400 yards to an area where the waves started breaking and it started getting a little harder over this coral reef so according to sandy a wave knocked them off of their raft and then then another wave knocked them apart though sandy was rescued by the fire department called by her fiance she was cut bruised and in shock Devereaux's lifeless body would be recovered hours later so while en route to Hawaii and before her death had been confirmed Devereaux's father Chuck received a phone call from one of Terry's followers 
to serve notice that she had a document Chuck needed to see. The Conscious Development Group wanted to make sure that Chuck was aware that Devereaux left a will <sighs> stating who was to get her rock collection and her basketball, along with her $125,000 trust fund. And wow. Chuck was like, what do you mean that her trust fund was willed to the Conscious Development Group? For a school or a world cruise. <laughs> oh. The that's docu- just, that just pathetic yeah, and I sad. Was, I was like, okay, mm, hot take. And, like, for a document, which was supposedly written by a teenager, was witnessed by two of Terry's followers and sprinkled with concise legal language such as, I give, devise, and bequeath all of my property... <sighs> including all rights, titles, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed, wherever situated to Terry, who has been to me like a second mother. And, like, that That's will... how 14-year-olds talk. I mean, I so know. natural. And she, like, hated Terry. <laughs> and, like... So, no... No police ever caught on to this? I mean, it's so obvious that nobody ever did anything. How did they not? I just... It seems so blatantly clear. Yeah. It's so bananas. But here's the... Well, here's the good news. The will's not binding due to the fact that Devereaux was 14. Its existence specifically prompted Chuck to question whether Sandy could have been deep under the influence of Terry or certain and like she was certain that Deborah was possessed and did she murder her daughter mm-hmm. she now, definitely did right I question oh that one I do question that one because when Chuck found her in the hospital she was inconsolable about Deborah's death until a member of conscious development came to her and then her entire demeanor changed similar to someone we already talked mm. about so, so like she was inconsolable about that $125,000 trust fund mm. uh, yeah me I would be uh, so it seemed like after the drama around the untimely death of Devereux and this bananas will all former friends and relatives at Sandy had virtually no one else to turn to she basically just went deeper and deeper into conscious development Sure. and Terry also began claiming that she could communicate with the dead including Glenn and Devereaux so by 1979 or December of 1979 Terry called off that wedding, isolated herself, and basically given all of her worldly goods to Terry, including her house, artwork, and silver. Um, Sandy had also taken out a $300,000 life insurance policy on herself, which was payable to Terry. Oh my god. In June of 1981, Sandy would write a new will, again, leaving everything to Terry. Sandy's 78-year-old housekeeper, Louise Watson, 
who went by Wheezy. Amazing. I know. It's just so fucking cute. It's very good. Very good. Yeah. I bet you that's what Devereaux called her. Uh, also wrote a will of her own that day, naming Sandy as the executrix of her meager estate, and then Terry as the alternate. Of course. So, later that year, Sandy and Louise traveled to Colorado Spring to see some land Terry and Dawn, we'll talk about Dawn in a minute, had just bought in the mountains. So, on September 9th, 1981, Sandy and Wheezy left the home of Terry's sister in Colorado Springs to visit the new land purchased by Conscious Development. Their vehicle was found the next day at the base of a 450-foot cliff below Torturous Gold Camp Road, where both women were expelled from the vehicle. Not Wheezy. Oh. Yeah. Wheezy apparently did not want to go. Um, like, she really didn't want to go on this trip, but Sandy convinced her. And due to the lack of tire marks and witnesses, a cause for the suspicious wreck was never determined. According to news reports, Terry showed up at a local hospital to claim the bodies two days afterwards. Terry was awarded and quickly cashed the $300,000 life insurance policy. However, Sandy's brother, his name was Croom Beatty IV. Wow. <laughs> nice. I'm deceased. It's like broom with a C. Croom Croom. Croom. I like it. It sounds like an evil villain, and I'm so here for it. And he's not the villain in this one. He was also an assistant to the president at Duke University. Um, he challenged Terry for the estate, officially recognizing that the dubious reputation for that conscious development had just basically been absorbing material wealth of its dead members. Who? That was multiplying. Rapidly. Uh, Kroom's attorney argued that Sandy Cleaver was effectively controlled by Terry's use of hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy. Terry agreed to settle the case after five days of testimony and opted to pay Kroom uh, 1100 nope, wait, $112,500 in cash. Sorry. And 40% of the net proceeds from the sale of Sandy's house. Though the rest of Sandy's estate was divided equally among the two. So though many of Sandy's friends and relatives claim that Terry was not deserving of anything from the family estate, the legal proceedings seemed to uh, basically... kind of de-escalate the situation. The next huh. mysterious death would take six years to happen. Uh, I can I couldn't read my own writing, people. This is <laughs> Just I blame the I, Black Lords; it's fine. Yeah, the Black Lords made me write too fast, and I was like, or mm -hmm. maybe you're going to the next level. I mean, no! <laughs> I knew it. How dare you? I'm terrible. That's the wow. No, I no, know. Hey, next level for us means I'm, like, going to play Dragon Age on the hard difficulty. <laughs> Maybe be mean to one of my companions. I don't know. 
Um, okay, yes. Basically, it de-escalated her death toll. Was regarding the legal proceedings. So, we had a well-educated school counselor, and her name was Robin Ottstadt. That's a great name. It reminds me of Roy Oybertson for some reason, but I think it's just the way that it looks on the page. Um, she had basically written a curricula for troubled teens in the Dallas School District, and it was designed to teach responsibility and decision-making. Can you be taught that? I don't know. Um, basically, she assumed responsibility for rewriting the Conscious Development Correspondence Courses, and Robin was a devout follower who filled her Lake Highland home with protective crystals and friendly gnome doll-like figurines and slept with special protective shields, lengths of copper tubing, twisted into strange serpentine shapes under her bed for protection from the Black Lords. Okay, that's creepy as hell. I was into the gnomes part, but then, like, the... The copper? No. The copper twisted metal copper under the bed? No. That's not okay. Yeah, Robin, you got me off the train. Sorry. Um... So, Robin was in this, like, bizarre love affair with a supernatural patriot named George Joffrey. You're not ready for this. Wow. I haven't been ready for any of this. Supernatural patriots, my goodness. In detailed journals and books later, reviewed by investigators, Robin recounted dates, trips, and conversations with the invisible CIA agent. George was invisible. (laughs) Yes. George was dematerialized and a government agent whom Terry Hoffman claimed to be training and using her powers to protect for the American government. By the end of 1986, Robin was convinced that her non-physical bodies, astral, mental, and physical had began to attack herself and others. As a member of the Conscious Development Group began to blame Robin's aggressive non-physical bodies for their various ailments and misfortunes, she just went straight into Depressamy Street and sank into isolation. So about mid-April of 1987, Robin called her ex-husband and explained that she had contracted a terminal case of viral hepatitis and that the disease had come from none other than a banana peel. <laughs> what? what? This what? is real? They told this... someone this with a straight face and they were like, yes. Probably crying at the same time. Okay. Wow. Her, quote, puzzled, end quote, ex-husband set up a doctor's <laughs> appointment. <laughs> <laughs> That's so kind. He was puzzled. (laughs) For Robin, and insisted that she had blood tests performed. However, later that week, on April 21st, Robin attended the doctor's appointment, but visited Terry later that day, and then returned home and took her life by shooting herself with a 30... A thirty-eight caliber revolver. Oh my god. That same night. So 
guess what? Robin Ottstadt bequeathed her Colorado land, all her jewelry, writings, and personal files, figurines, clothes, and bedroom furniture to Tom Hanks? No, Terry Hoffman. (laughs) In a will created two months before her death, the only note found at the scene of Robin's death read... I am apologizing to Terry 3,000 times a week on all levels of my being for the highly offensive, rude, and vulgar comments I made to her last week. I love her dearly and beg her forgiveness one day. Are you ready wow. for the... Oh, no. You ready for Bananas Part 2? Oh, I don't know if I am. <laughs> you remember those blood tests? Yes. They confirmed that Robin had no sign of hepatitis or no any way. other disease. This is like really like con artist plus serial killer. I know. It's like once you get started, can you stop though? Well, it's like it was apparently very easy because she did the exact same thing every time and nobody caught on. I mean, it's just like. I'm a little offended that she didn't make it harder to find out, but then why would you when nobody bothered to even... Yeah. I mean, all the the dots are right there. I just... You, it's it's all, like, what all. are you going to do? Google it? <laughs> exactly. No Google. Wow. Wow. So, you remember Sandy Cleaver in the settlement? Mm-hmm. So, she had reportedly few, if any, formal classes or meetings, again, in Dallas, Texas. Although... She did continue to counsel individuals. However, thanks to especially effective conscious development teachers who toured the country in 1979-1980 to promote Miss Hoffman's teachings, the philosophies and developments and teachings of the group began to be more popular in Chicago. Ooh, that's a place we already talked about. In 1987, Conscious Development, a bind, bind, body, and bull, (laughs) was also incorporated in Illinois. I don't even know. So, a new member of said group that was forming in Chicago at the time, Mary Levinson, was a talented artist and animal lover. Aww. And had a family name that evoked immediate recognition in parts of Indiana for a chain of 13 men's clothing stores founded by her grandfather. Another rich person. Love rich people, she said with a joke. Uh, However, she was a, a sufferer of chronic knee pain and often described as deeply troubled. Aren't we all? And Mary had made more than a half a dozen attempts at taking her own lives by drown- downing pills. That was how it was worded. Um, during court proceedings, a psychiatrist would describe Mary Levinson as virtually immobilized by anxiety and tension. I feel like I've been there recently, but you know. <laughs> You're right, I, I get it. Yeah, I was like, man, Mary, god damn. So she was into this, the conscious development, and she was into Terry, who, by this time, was reportedly averse to travel, 
and she would only visit Chicago twice before Mary's death. Which makes this one all the more horrifically impressive. But Mary and Terry would have weekly Chicago to Dallas phone consultations, during which Mary asked her mother wait in the lobby of her apartment building because they would be so incredibly secretive. On November 30th of 1987, Mary Levinson was found deceased in a suburban Chicago, suburban Chicago motel room. On her nightstand, authorities found a partially smoked pack of cigarettes, a motel room key, a pen, a blank notepad, a glass of Sprite, and almost 100 pills. The autopsy revealed that she had overdosed on two types of prescription sleeping pills and also noted a small needle puncture mark on her left wrist. She left a video for her family in which she mentioned having recently cashed $125,000 divorce settlements to pay off minor debts and make contributions to animal welfare societies. But in the video, Mary further elaborated, I donated money to institutions, charitable institutions, which I will not name. I don't want any hassle, any trace, any way for you to try and to retrieve the money that has been given out of love to people that really need it. That was my money to do with as I pleased, and that was what I chose to do. I want you to understand I am fully rational, and I've come to this decision after a long time of thinking. I am actually looking forward to it. I am in a great deal of physical pain and emotional pain, and I have been for about six months now. Obviously, with my past work with animals, I believe in euthanasia for those who are suffering horribly. So, Mary's family later discovered she'd been using her mother's charge card to buy more than $3,200 worth of fine jewelry in the time leading up to her death. Neither of the divorce settlement or that jewelry was ever accounted for, though Mary's mother absolutely knew that it was Terry who had played far too prominent of a role in Mary's life in that final year of Chicago. So unbeknownst to her family, Mary had also changed the beneficiary of her life insurance policy to Dr. Larry Keyes, a former boyfriend who she had met at a retreat with, you guessed it, Terry Hoffman. The family believes that Mary took such extraordinary measures to prevent them from knowing how she disposed of her estate so that they would be unable to contest it. After the death was ruled a suicide, without direct evidence of any inappropriate donations given to the Conscious Development Group, Mary's family had no recourse. They grieved in an emotional vacuum, unaware that the same situation had occurred with the families of several Conscious Development members in Texas. What? No Google. No Google. Okay. We have been referring to her as Terry Hoffman for some time now, haven't we? But you're thinking, last we knew, this bish was Terry Wilder. And then she was Terry Cooley. How did she become Terry Hoffman? And why do we know her as Terry Hoffman, right? Okay, so let's start out with Don and Alice Hoffman. They became followers of conscious development 
1974. Don, an electrical engineer by trade, had also served as the president of a congregation at Ascension Lutheran Church. However, after the accidental drowning of their three-year-old daughter, Don and Alice rejected conventional religion and became members of Terry's Inner Circle. In 1980, Don and Alice divorced after 22 years of marriage. Alice then signed a waiver to allow Don to marry Terry without the usual day-waiting period. At this point, Terry had just divorced her third husband, Ben Johnson, one month earlier. Afterward, Alice Hoffman quietly dropped out of conscious development. That seems like it was the plan the whole time. Hmm. Honestly, so, if she gets out with her life, I mean, you're in pretty good shape. You're ahead. Considering. Yeah, I'm just saying, she probably, like, you know, dodged a bullet. Literally. Mm-hmm. By 1988, it appears that diary entries of close followers, who were also later found dead, that uh, Don and Terry were having some difficulties. So one of these diary passages read, and yes, I'm going to do an impression for you. Sunday, June 19th. Day of justice for all. Terry comes over and takes a new pill with us. Don has lowered her consciousness. God infuriates David, quote another follower, over Don's poor treatment of her- Terry. David asked God to bring justice to Don. Not to send bad karma, just to send karma that he deserves. So, basically, yeah. He's apparently been suffering from some ailments, like shortness of breath, some pains. I mean, like, if he was married to someone for 22 years, what is the age that he could possibly be? I'm throwing it down. He's probably older? Like, if Terry was born in 1938 and it's 1988, she's 50. So, I mean, pains are a thing. I'm 29, and I have so many pains right now. (laughs) I mean, I am living through a pandemic, and I've, you know, done stupid shit. But, like, he lived through the 70s. As an adult, I'm just saying, pains are a thing. Anyway, so we have Don Hoffman, September 16th, 1988. He checks into a hotel room of the Marriott Hotel in Las Colinas, Texas. And he does take his own life by overdose. He left a three page note and then three videotape messages for his loved ones. If you watch the Unsolved Mysteries clip, which is available on Hulu right now, as of this recording, which, you know, past that, I take no responsibility for what I just told you. You can actually watch one of these recordings. His haircut is somehow relevant. (laughs) Which, you know, I love judging haircuts, guys. Just gonna throw this all out. 
when I when they put Supermarket Sweep back on Netflix, like, well, I say back on Netflix, I was so excited because I remember watching it the first time and then watching it again, I loved judging the haircuts. That's what I was there for. So great. Love it. Anyway. He, one of his videotapes, basically he says, I have terminal and operable cancer and I refuse to go through chemotherapy just to gain a few more months of living. I wouldn't really be living anyway, just taking too long to die. So Don basically claims that he had three different doctors confirm that he had cancer and Don's death bore chilling similarities to the death of Glenn Cooley and it was determined to have been a mixed drug overdose. Don Hoffman's autopsy. What do you think? No way. No cancer? No cancer! Ding, 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 ding. Just like Robin Onstad didn't have hepatitis. And in a phone call with Don's son, Rick, Terry was recorded explaining that a spiritual master in the ephemeral realm told her what Don definitely had was cancer. And he said the Black Lords were trying to create an illusion so the medical examiner wouldn't find cancer, so they would hurt us all more. So, Don Hoffman left all of his property to Terry. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> on March 3rd, 1989, his children sued her for wrongful death by contending that Terry Hoffman used hypnosis to persuade their father to kill himself. Wild. Are we done? No, we're not done yet. (laughs) It's crazy that they're like, yes, hypnosis and not just, you know, manipulation, just emotional manipulation. That's all it is. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true, but she was like a trained hypnotist and like, it's insane to think that, yeah, it, those kind of emotional manipulations do work. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, where am I? So that's how she was married to him from 1980 to 1989. So for nine years. And that was during, you know, like the big parts of um, conscious development so I think that's why she's best known as Terry Hoffman and she maintained the name Hoffman until quite some time until I believe she was married once more Um, but that is I believe why she was she kept the name Hoffman for so long and that's her best known pseudonym I guess Uh, now we have Jill Bounds and Jill Bounds was um a Dallas resident. She had a year-long marriage that quickly ended divorce, and she decided to go back to school in 1977, and she studied psychology. Um, She was insightful and balanced, as described by one of her patients, and Jill primarily counseled patients who were mostly interested in personal growth, not those who were struggling with severe mental illness. And she was professional and successful Jill struggled to find her own personal meaning and had a number of chaotic relationships 
manipulative and was with a variety of men throughout her lifetime. Again, how many of us aren't? And (laughs) she also had the deep belief in reincarnation. She had a macrobiotic diet, which I find very interesting in the late, what, or the mid-70s. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, But I don't know all those things. I wasn't in the 70s. And my dad always said, like, if you remember the 70s, you weren't there. Just (laughs) kind of how I feel about the pandemic. Uh, She... Oh, yeah, she followed that diet to avoid surgical treatment for uterine fibroid tumors, which, ouch, right? Um, So, basically, she joined Conscious Development as early as 1973. She was uh, deeply involved with Terry by 1979, and then she left the group in 1982 after the publicity surrounding Terry and the mysterious deaths of the people associated with her. Afterwards, she was convinced that Terry had sent cockroaches to plague her town's house, her townhouse as revenge. After her dissension with the group, um, Jill would refer to Terry as the witch and told numerous people that she was afraid of her. Um, so, in September twentieth, nineteen eighty-eight, she Jill Bounds was attacked and bludgeoned to death in her bed. Wow. One, yeah, a window, one of only three windows, not on the security system, had been left open. And a family member's claimed that this window could not have been taken out of its frame from the outside without a substantial amount of difficulty and noise. So it seems as though the window was open from the inside to imply that the murderer had broken in. After Jill's brutal attack, the murderer flipped through and ripped several pages out of Jill's 1979 journal. The attacker appeared to have cleared themselves, um, cleaned themselves up in her bathroom afterwards. Though Jill's Cartier watch, computer, television, and stereo were untouched, her family members determined that gold, gems, and other jewelry were missing, along with Jill's gun and, uh, Jill's mother also claims to have found an occultic drawing several days after the murder on the ground outside her daughter's bedroom window. Nearby, she also discovered a red toy robot, its legs pulled off and head crushed in. So all of this was very concerning to her family. Jill had been visiting Terry Hoffman um, several months earlier, that specific year. And in addition, one of Jill's longtime friends since, like, you know, before 1975, had her alarm code, and he reportedly invited people to conscious development meetings in the past and had made an odd but memorable, memorable remark to Jill's sister. He asked Jill's sister if she knew he was the beneficiary to Jill's life insurance policy, though he wasn't listed in Jill's will, and as far as the sister knew, everything was bequeathed to the family. So, the murder of Jill Bounds is still unsolved, but her family believes that it was the involvement of conscious development. Which, obviously. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one, I have to admit, is the most bananas. 
And I know you're on the edge of your seat right now. You're like, wait, excuse me. The most bananas? Is that I refuse. Possible? I refuse to believe it could be more bananas. This is nuts. This one's just straight up coconuts. Okay. So we have David Goodman, an extremely well-educated, well-liked person. He had an MBA from Berkeley and a doctorate in management science from Yale. He had worked as a professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas and was granted tenure by age 32. That's impressive. Dang. Along with a partner, David had also devised a complex computer-tested formula for picking stocks, which I don't want to get into it, but, like, if you're a stock person, that would be, like, a, you know... That's a thought boner for you, but I don't have one. Like, I don't understand things. But basically, he made a lot of money from this, and then he quit teaching entirely. It was like a genius thing, and everybody did something. And then, like, now we still use some methods today or something or other. I don't know. I just work here. And I tried to put it together, and I still couldn't understand. No, stocks are a mystery. <laughs> I just, I can't understand them, and then I give up because I don't It's care. rich people gambling. That's <laughs> all. Yeah. Yeah. I call it stonks. And yes, it is from that meme because like at the end of it, that's how I feel. Yeah. So after his first marriage failed, naturally, while going through what we all call a great period of pain, David Goodman began attending counseling sessions with Terry Hoffman, which basically is a death sentence. And he later told his family that Terry could, quote, read minds and quote see people's auras and the almost 40 year old professor was also married off by terry hoffman to two different 20 something year old followers by the early 1980s both of those marriages failed within a few years however in 1984 david felt as though he found his true soulmate in glenda carlson a divorced mother and painstakingly devoted conscious development member. Initially, David's parents were also delighted with the new marriage to the more mature woman who was his age. Terry insisted the two had been married in previous lifetimes. David and Glenda Goodman were described as inseparable, ecstatic, and yeah. I don't know what I was going for when I wrote that down. Anyway, However, David and Glenda continued further into conscious development, into the inner circle, as usual, and they isolated themselves from their families, as usual. Glenda sent her young daughters to live with their father in Singapore and insisted that they were welcome back for only two weeks during the summer. Wow. Uh, David reportedly considered those girls a distraction. Wower. And by late 1989, David told his parents and his adult son, Rick, Rick, that he couldn't communicate them with them anymore. Like, okay, I'm sorry. I understand this is before texting, but like, you're not a millennial and terrified of the phone. You can do this. Jeez. According to journals found in their home the same ones that referenced Don Hoffman BTW um, 
particularly insightful meditations took place with the aid of white pills, mysterious unidentified capsules that Terry gave them. I'm going to call those meds. <laughs> and I am afraid to even assume what it could be. Like, I'm, I'm, anytime like you have a spiritual vision on something, it's not going to really go well for you in real life. Like afterward, like what? Don't interpret your like I'm really high dreams. They're just, they're just there. That's it. It's over. People. And it, <laughs> And I was like, I don't remember when she incorporated hallucinogens into her, into her study. That's a, that's a moment. That's something I should have paused on, but this is the first time I had heard of it. So, of course, the visions often encouraged the Goodmans to procure elaborate gifts for Terry. They got her. Are you ready? A 1988 Lincoln Continental which honestly I want one a two bedroom house another thing I want these are gifts? yes $5,000 and 50% of everything forevermore <laughs> out of all of those the $5,000 was the cheap gift right? the bad gift like yeah. wow 5000 thanks <laughs> you know I'm over here like I'll just take the house can I can I have a house? Um, the couple gave the couple gave over one hundred and ten thousand dollars to Terry between eighty seven and eighty eight, according to their check register. Right. So Glenda recorded their fantastic spiritual adventures in the detailed journals, often mentioning a perception of God's voice speaking from within. The accounts revealed that Glenda and David were convinced. They were the Roman gods, Venus and Jupiter. I don't know how to tell them that those aren't real because they stole them from the Greeks. Wow. Wow. Like a simple Google search <laughs> would have told you that, but you didn't have Google, so you couldn't have looked that up. But then the book. See, is they right weren't. There. They weren't as smart as Terry. They went too far. Jupiter and Venus. So you could pull on. it back to a saint, a, a demigod, maybe. But, like, you could have just looked it up in the book and they would have been like, hey, yo, did you know that the the Romans just photocopied the Greek mythology? <laughs> like, jeez. Because, oh. really, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, anyway, Glenda on, ominously wrote that they had this experience and they heard God's voice declaring. And do you think I'm going to do an impression? Of course. You are now no longer David Goodman, son of Allison Leonard. That person is gone because the programming is totally wiped out. You are Jupiter now. And so they, they thought they were gods being talked to by God. Yeah. That's really confusing. Yeah, okay. I was into it. Uh, they felt like they had been enduring mankind's bad karma, except... How? He's a rich white dude. 
Well, they're the best at feeling persecuted. That is true. They're one hundred percent feeling persecuted. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah. Like in the eighties, that was like, wow. That's pre. They, they had it all. Jeez. Yeah, they didn't even have the women. No, I'm kidding. Just saying, they had. It was primo time for them. But in order to attain spiritual power and be like God. Terry and the Masters. I want to know who the Masters are. They had to cut off all contact with their loved ones who are considered to be stealing their energies. See, actually what happens is people that I hate steal my energy Mm. because, you know, if I love you, I'm like, oh, let me send you a text and be like, you're the best. Bye. But if it's somebody I hate, I'm going to write 50 tweets and then delete them all. You know? Yeah. People I hate take up so much of my time. Right? Okay. So that's where they really fucked up, is what I'm saying. You don't cut off the people you love, you cut off the people you hate. But aside from recording those experiences with God, as they are supposed to be gods, and this, like, spiritual purpose and whatnot, they basically were on a dark and lonely path. Waging a deadly battle with evil black lords and, yes, erecting metaphysical shields to protect themselves from danger, enduring karmic poison to prove their faith. And they had intense paranoia about being infected with negative energies. Yeah. Um. I just. I had to, uh. I had to say. This part really tripped me out. Police found a, quote, unboarded letter, end quote, in Glenda's trash. And it said, I am extremely depressed right now and would love to have the nerve to uh, kill myself. But so far, I can't get up the gumption. So in January of 1990, Glenda and David Goodman were found shot to death. They had been dead for over a month in their Lake Highlands home, and the authority ruled their deaths as a double suicide. Glenda's first journal entry was a warning from God about leeches and meddlers who would try to persuade her that she would never get her energies. After the deaths of the Goodmans, the district's attorney's office the district attorney's office began to investigate Hoffman in general in all of her doings about but, time wow. yeah i know right but don't you love it when like we'll investigate and then nothing happens uh she never faced charges relating to the mysterious deaths su- suicides or disappearances surrounding her over the years david goodman's father leonard is convinced that terry was responsible for the death of glenda and david absolutely he filed a wrongful death suit and emphatically insisted maybe it was a double suicide but one word from Terry would have stopped it one word from Terry would have set it off yep so in the wake of their deaths um, of course there was a launched wide ranging investigation into her activities no concrete connection was found Uh, between her influence and the many deaths of her followers. That is bananas! Yeah. Um, He admitted prosecutor Cecil or Cecil uh, 
Um, Emerson admitted that while investigating the deaths, his interviews with surviving followers uh, left him convinced that she had hypnotic powers, but the evidence didn't translate into a grand jury proceeding. I don't understand. Just take it to the grand jury and see what happens. Because you would be surprised what they would indict these days. I'm just, <laughs> or those days. Be like, this woman convinced these people to take their own lives. And then you put her on the stand. And they're like, yeah, okay, next. But, you know, there were people who already had emotional problems or searching for something before they found her. Right. So one would say that they were easy victims for her, but that's just victim blaming. You can't blame a person for being who they are and a predator finding the perfect prey. Yeah. No, it's not okay. But in October of 1991, the greatest month ever, because that's when I came into the picture, I basically bankrupted her. And she had... <laughs> <laughs> The She filed for bankruptcy, which did derail the civil suits. When the bankruptcy is filed, it's basically an automatic stay, and it protects, like, you know what? It doesn't matter. But she did def um, file bankruptcy. So in response, she was indicted with fraud charges, alleging that she hid the various ads, like assets, debts, payments, and contracts during the bankruptcy. Supporters claimed that the bankruptcy fraud charges seemed to be a way of getting a conviction of some kind against her. Uh, 94, she was convicted of 10 counts of fraud and was potentially facing 50 years in jail. However, in 1995, she did appeal them, arguing that there was insufficient evidence that she was knowingly and fraudulently making false declarations. Mmm... She was acquitted. The whole thing was dismissed. Hmm. So there is a seemingly defunct website called heavenandearthphoto.com, which displays a photo of Terry and refers to as the artist Terry Lila, Lilia, L-I-L-Y-A, Keenly. And this website sells photographs of angels and heavenly beings, which are usually just clouds and sunsets. Although wow. some of them do have cartoon faces and bodies Microsoft painted onto them. Wow. That sounds yes. amazing. She did pass on October 31st, 2015. And the conclusion of her obituary... So our leader has left us on the physio-astral, but nevertheless still exist on all other levels until we meet again. That is the most horrifying end of an obituary I've ever read in my life. Yeah. So, for those of you who think that you could never be susceptible to a cult, um, consider your own emotional state right now. And remember that even though she did serve uh, one year of life in prison, one year of her life in prison. One whole year. One whole year. She still got married again after to oh a guy God. named Roger Keenly. And she was Terry 
Lilia Keenly and still wrote a financial advice book. Wow. Yep. There has been no justice for Jill or Charles Southern. They posted the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, but there was no, there's no lead for Charles Southern. He has never been found. Unfortunately, Charles Southern's mother passed. And basically, I think Terry is believed to have been involved in the death of her two husbands, her only son, six followers, and two people connected to her followers. And the causes of death were one murder, four fatal accidents, and six suicides. And then one disappearance. Wow. Thoughts? Uh, my the thought worst. is her financial advice book must be the shortest thing ever that just says manipulate people, then kill them. I yeah. mean, that's her whole that's her just, whole thing. That's her whole thing. Like, has she earned an honest dollar? Actually, that's not a fair assessment because she did that she did do some legwork. She had to come up with like stealing everybody's other you know, religious stuff, but and identify she? appropriate victims. Yeah. Well, they come to you after a while. Apparently. But what do you think? Do you think that just anyone could fall for a cult or? I think there are some very, very charismatic people who know how to manipulate others. And so I think it is absolutely true that anybody could fall for it if you're not careful and also emotional manipulation is a big part of it yeah and i mean you can I think make someone feel something we've all been emotionally manipulated by somebody over you know usually tiny things and a lot of it maybe is even unintentional but mm -hmm. yeah, i mean it's something that anybody yeah it can happen to anybody i agree and i i think about the the state of our country right now and i think that's the biggest i guess indicator of how susceptible we are and what's so interesting about conscious development is how many of the devoted followers were very, very educated. And I do love to rag on the South because I am from the South and I know what their education system is like and the statistics and how we're always at the bottom and that education has been an issue for so long but I also think it's a systemic issue where you there's a type of education required and I think it's emotional intelligence yeah and that is something so lacking in society right now is how to have emotional intelligence and that's basically where people can fall victim to these type of things so easily especially if they're already wounded and then then there's the type of people who are looking for justification in their own beliefs that are contrary to what society has decided is right or okay um yeah that's my thought yeah i think you're right on i mean it's definitely People that are, are 
feeling lost or hurting or what have you, they're definitely, um, I mean, we're all susceptible to it, but I think you're extra susceptible to it in that moment when you're looking for something to grab onto and somebody can offer you something that you might, you know, not the warning bells might not go off because you're so into whatever they're offering because you just want that something to grab onto and believe in. Mm-hmm. And there's like the monetization of outrage on social media yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. Facebook ads and Fox News and it's pushing a feeling over a fact. Like yep. you can't mm-hmm. talk someone out of their feelings with facts because they didn't arrive at their conclusion with facts. So yeah. that's why it doesn't work. Definitely. Because I, I definitely see where you're coming from, especially with the monetization part. Is, And we saw that with Terry. It was like, how do you make that quick buck? How do you make all of that sweet, sweet cash without... Like, she didn't care about these people. Maybe at the beginning she did. But then the cash comes in and you're like, huh. And so there were a, a number of different cults that I did study of the Ant Hill kids being one of them where these followers were like die hard and I hate to use that phrase because they did but they really did go that extra bizarre mile and like what gets someone there and I think it is that disillusionment and that isolation and once you're there and you're in it it's hard to get out of it because this is what you've known for enough time, you know? Sure, and it gives you that sense of, you know, belonging and purpose that you were looking for, and nobody wants to give that up because that's, like, the maybe one genuine good thing you're getting out of it, even though mm-hmm. they're terrible. Mm-hmm. You feel like, these people understand you. I fit in here. I'm understood here. This is all, you know, these are my people. And so even if they're awful and doing things that are harming you, it could be really, really hard to see that. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah, so that is Terry Hoffman and the disappearance of Charles Southern. I definitely don't think that that disappearance is going to be solved any soon, anytime soon. I believe Charles would be over 70 at this time if he were still alive. So, unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever find the answer. But I think we do know the answer. Um, just like in our hearts. <laughs> And our souls but uh yeah i do you have any last thoughts on the cult the story the topic uh i no not really i mean i didn't know any of this and i'm fascinated and horrified at the same time yeah it's a cult yeah. that wasn't bloody there's a lot of dead people though yeah she did not do any of it by hand that's the part that i don't know if that's true (laughs) i don't either but like if you think about it how many of these were absolute coercions yeah the later ones definitely were but i don't know about some of the other ones i i don't know like there's some that i'm like i do think she coerced and from other cases i've read i do think it's it's totally possible yeah, she's a bit of a supervillain. Yeah, and like this is a unique, a unique situation. Like we don't hear a lot about a serial killer who doesn't have to touch their victims, you know. But I would consider her one. Like yeah. if these people had never met her, 
they'd all still be alive. Well, definitely. Yeah, probably. They would not have come to their end in the way right. that they did. Yeah. But yeah, no, definitely. Good point. Um, so I would love for you guys to take a second and uh, like present your uh, projects for lack of a better term, pimp your projects. Uh, so our, I would say our, but my listeners can find you, um, like your audio shows, anything you're working on recently, and your Twitter handles. Sure. Um, so we run uh, PendantAudio.com, which is a podcasting company. It's mostly audio dramas, but we've got a couple of other geeky podcasts now. Uh, we've been doing that since 2004. Most, the vast majority of the shows are all free. And you can, uh, they're on iTunes and Spotify and everywhere else, Google Podcasts. All the links are up on the website. You can go there, check it out, look at all the different shows. Um, as Susan mentioned earlier, we had a, our, our first creator-owned comic, Kill Switch, uh, came out just last year and is available in trade paperback format, which you can get on Barnes & Noble or Amazon, or you can order it from any comic book shop. And, and it's also on Comixology and digital. Yes, if you like digital comics. Um, if you'd like uh, links to any of the rest of our work or credits, you can find that at our personal uh, writing website, which is birdguest.com, which is a ludicrous uh, website, but there's a reason for it, and it's up there if you want to know the tiny little story about why we have such a stupid website name. And, <laughs> um, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Tilly Bridges. And I'm at Susan L. Bridges. Did I forget anything or miss anything? I don't think Did so. Did I cover it all? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> And then today's show was researched by myself and Skylar. You can find at Skylar Ezel on Twitter. This was such a boatload of information that Skylar and I went at it together. There were so many jokes back and forth. He was like, oh, my God, she's stealing from everyone. I need to check my bank account. And... (laughs) So much appreciated, Skylar. Thank you so much. Um, if you want to hear any other stories from Skylar, check out Brandon Bernard or the Hill alien abduction. Um, but thank you so much for helping me with this one. It was a monster, and it's one that I've wanted to do since the very beginning of the show. So very thrilled to get to do that. And thank you, Tilly and Susan, for coming on. And I get to share this delightfully horrible episode with you. Yes, thanks for inviting us on to horrify us and give us nightmares. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> you're welcome. Hopefully it's inspiring for your next, you know, whatever you're working on. You can be like, oh, I remember this one episode. <laughs> and again, you can find this podcast at Talk About Facts. That's T-A-L- K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S on Twitter and Instagram or you can email us story suggestions at L-T-A-T-F podcast at gmail.com and we will see you not this next week but the week after taking a week off for COVID vaccine relief because wow did my butt get kicked um, <laughs> so we will be preparing for the next big episode in that case because we're taking extra time thank you guys so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week